Bill, thank you for sharing your time and expertise with us on uh, nuclear verdicts, one of the biggest topics going on today. Uh, one place I want to start, and I've done this with the other folks I've talked to, is how do you define a nuclear verdict? I don't think there's really a definition. I think it's really in the the eyes of the beholder. You know, everybody goes back to the 1994 uh, McDonald's coffee verdict. Oh, wow, that's a nuclear verdict. That was only $3 million that ended up really being overturned. Um, but people thought it was kind of ludicrous because of the nature of the, it wasn't really the amount of money. And so I have clients that have been hit for $5 million. They consider that a nuclear verdict in their world. And then you go, you go talk to a company like Walmart, you hit them for 5 million, they're laughing all the way to the bank. So I think it's really dependent upon the industry. But I think in general, we could all agree that the nuclear verdict or what we would call this 30 years ago or 25 years ago, the runaway jury, these are just verdicts that are outside of the very outside of the original uh, economic assessment of the case. You know, uh, how did we get here, Bill, uh, to build up to this? And, and I talked, uh, spoke uh, with uh, Rebecca Brewster about the ATRI study, and they have the charts that track out the increasing verdicts over time and then increasing sharply lately. How do you see us getting uh, to this point in the progression of this? I don't think it's anything new. This is this phenomenon has been around for a while, Doug. This is not anything new. Everybody's making it new. Um, and I think between uh, media, social media, the uh, plaintiff attorney advertising, it, it's getting a lot more attention. But this is something that's literally been around for 30 years. And yes, you have... Uh, um, these very high uh, verdicts, but you start going back into the 1980s is when this this started happening. So again, uh, this is nothing new, but there are various factors that we go over in this paper. We know what causes this stuff. Unfortunately, you have a lot of um, pundits out there uh, that have many hypotheses, and they're only hypotheses uh, about why this stuff is happening. For example, one of the, well, jurors are fed up. Jurors are fed up. Well, <clears throat> jurors were fed up in 1982. I, I, I can tell you that much. And they were fed up in, in 2002, and they're going to be fed up in 2022. <clears throat> this is nothing new. So what we've tried to do at Courtroom Sciences is really focus on the scientific predictors of what's going on here. And over over a 30-year period, we've we've really figured that out. Let's start. One of the things that uh, I think you begin in the article with and, and lay out and is very helpful to folks is the uh, the, the various causes yeah. that can be for the uh, and I call them detonators to detonate yeah. the verdicts. What uh, if you want to uh, go through? Yep, exactly. If you want to go through those, Bill, in terms of what you had uh, for, from the problem witnesses, egregious conduct on down through those. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and number one on that list, and it's a reason for number one, because it's by far the number one predictor of not just verdicts, but but damages is the quality of the witness testimony from the defendant. Um, number n number one predictor of, of verdict and damages, which is why I'm so busy preparing witnesses every week for deposition and uh, 
trial testimony. And I think one of the factors that's really played into this is the fact, especially over the last 20 years, is the number of, uh, particularly with corporate rep, uh, but just any defendant fact witness, um, the number of these depositions that have been videotaped mm -hmm. and then used in the courtroom, you know, two years later. Um, can have can have devastating uh, effects. Number one, but then just the live testimony and what what the plaintiff bar has done very well is learn how to completely take advantage and, and manipulate witnesses and get them into more of these kind of fight or flight response patterns. And juries don't like that crap. They really, really don't, Doug. And so if if you know, and, and expert witnesses on most cases they kind of cancel each other out because they're all hired guns. Everybody knows it, but the fact witnesses were there. So the problem, the problem witnesses for defendants really seal the deal very quickly on liability. And then we start talking about nuclear verdicts, the more dislikable these people are uh, and the lack of trust, the lack of believability, um, some sense of sliminess even perhaps, this is what gets juries um, really out of control with those dollar figures. And so that's really the, the, the top factor pushing this, which, by the way, highly preventable and highly controllable. I was, I was going to say, Bill, you and courtroom science deal with this all the time. Uh, yeah. what, it, it, are we talking the demeanor, the content, uh, presentation, or, or all of the above? It's less, it's less content. It's more of the... Um, it's, it's more of the, you know, so you, so you got your demeanor, which is just the body language, the professionalism. You would think, you know, you tell any witness, hey, be professional in front of the jury. Well, if you're a witness, particularly if you're not, if you're a witness that's never testified before, when you're going into a foreign land, which is a courtroom, you're nervous, you're, you're anxious, maybe you're frustrated for being there. And a lot of that demeanor can really go south pretty quickly because of the emotional side of this. So that's definitely a factor. I think the number one variable, though, right. is is emotion. You Again, back to fight or flight. Right. Witnesses will become very defensive and argumentative, if not evasive. Huge turnoff to a jury, right? And or on the other end, they do the opposite. They Rather than arguing and fighting, they go, yeah. okay, all right, I'll, I'll say anything to get out of this chair yeah. right now. Yeah. No, to the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> yeah. And so the emotional aspect is the number one factor I deal with with witnesses, but that is really what's driving the really the, the, the poor testimony. Uh, in terms of the witnesses, uh, we talked about that. Uh, one of the things, other factors I think you indicated was uh, the egregiousness of the conduct. Uh, yeah. on, and, and you go from the, uh, you know, what for a lot of people was a punchline, the McDonald's jury, until you start to drill down through it. Oh, yeah. They completely played that case the wrong way. And when you have, so here's an uncontrollable factor. That, see, I can control witness testimony. Mm -hmm. I can control that. I can't control it when you have, you know, terrible emails, right, or your hiring practices, Right. So, for example, in the trucking industry, <laughs> some of the hiring practices, you're like, eh, I don't know about that. Or if you have a defendant that was intoxicated on some sort of drug. Right. I mean, there are certain 
areas here that that when a jury hears it, they cringe and they want to go into a punitive Sunday message type of nature. And the way that type of cases, those cases aren't designed for courtrooms, Doug, because it's not a matter of, you know, are you going to lose or not? It's yes, you're going to get your butt handed to you. It's just a factor of how much. And so when you have these cases where you have egregious uh, conduct that we know is really going to tick off the jury, kind of how the trial attorney works up that case, you're trying to mitigate and probably resolve that case well before it gets to the courtroom. Because when jurors see that stuff, particularly in the form, uh, especially now in you know 2020, um, electronic communication, pictures, videos, this is stuff the jury cannot unsee. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very important that these cases get properly assessed and worked up initially to really position them for settlement. Because if you get into a courtroom, the jury will never forgive you for some of this stuff. Is it a situation we talked about, uh, Rebecca, uh, in the Atri study about this, where uh, one of the key ways to avoid the nuclear verdict is to evaluate what you have early on and, uh, <laughs> and make your strategy, make your call then, rather than play your hand and see what happens? Yeah, in, in fact, I mean, maybe maybe that's the tough factor in avoiding nuclear verdicts is um being aggressive early in the case even if it's a bad case um the defense bar um and, and quite accurately gets criticized for being more reactive than proactive as, as compared to the plaintiff's bar and that and that that really really has to change and so yes uh, uh accurate assessment of these cases early on absolutely vital to suppressing nuclear verdicts but then the next step being in discovery you know who's going to be taking the lead here who's going to be driving the momentum are you going to be re reactive or proactive and so a lot of what we do is um you know collaborating with our corporate clients with our insurance clients to ensure that these depositions, right, don't blow up in our face, because that's what's going to start multiplying the value of the case. And even if you have a bad set of case facts, you have relatively effective depositions where the plaintiff attorney is not leaving the deposition really with more than they came in with. They're not reptiling, uh, you know, your witnesses. Uh, you could really suppress the value of that case and it can be a resolution that's fair to both parties you do the opposite that's how this no one talks about the nuclear settlement that's actually that's actually the bigger problem here the more expensive problem in this industry well all industries but just in litigation is the nuclear settlement that never reaches the newspaper that no one wants to talk about and that's what's happening here. Because listen, 98% of these cases settle, Doug. You know just as well as sure. I do. Yeah. Yeah, two percent, you know, getting on the newspaper, getting on the internet, and you're seeing your nuclear verdicts, and that's what everybody's worried about. It's the 98% of the settlements where oh, there's a lot of money being completely wasted. But well, kind of jumping ahead a little bit, I think that goes to one of the other topics you brought up in the article, and it's it's right out of the pages of Reptile, is to play upon 
the uh, risk aversion of either the defense bar or the insurance companies and the impact. I mean, my my saying always is that uh, that insurer can justify uh, a, a large settlement. Uh, they can't defend an explosion on their watch. And then in the reptile, it tells them to uh, play upon the, the career ending potential of a large verdict to a, oh, yeah. a doctor or to a defense attorney. Oh, th th there's a full chapter on this in the reptile oh. book. And this is why what you're seeing is, so I'm working, I was working on a case last year in Atlanta on a slip and fall in the grocery store where the yeah. lady didn't slip and fall. She tripped and fell over yeah. wearing a $2 pair of flip-flops and was clumsy and tripped and fell and broke her leg. And the whole thing's on video. Doug, the demand on the case is $15 million. Yeah, well, yeah. I, and here's the thing. And, and we actually had a great outcome in this case because of all the work we put in. But here's what they were betting. Like, hey, I know this case ain't going to trial. What? Yeah, I know this is not even a $500,000 case. I can throw out $15 million because now I got everybody nervous, right, in-house. And now the excess providers call in going, uh-oh, what's going on? I've got everybody in a frenzy. And the only thing that's going to get rid of this case is somebody writing me a check. And I don't care if it's for half of the 15. And so what you're seeing now is this exploitation. And boy, it's just so bad. And it works. Hey, yeah. hats off to the plaintiff's part. They're completely exploiting the system and using the leverage. And you're right. It's They call it the uh, the ever-present guillotine right. of the profession where if I get hit with a verdict, I'm getting yeah. my... I'm my, my head getting chopped up. Yeah. And if I write this check, yeah, it may not look good, but at least I'm not losing my job. It's happening from coast to coast, all 50 states. Yeah. You said about being aggressive. Some of the things we do, Bill, and, and uh, I, I kind of get startled reactions from insurers, and they eventually accept it, is, is a lot of times if we have a, a potential claim on liability, we'll, we'll sue the other side first, get us to jump on discovery, and, and also to hold jurisdiction. Uh, before suits filed, we ask for uh, independent medical exams. And I really don't care if they accept or not. I've got them on record. If they deny it, then it puts them in the background on that uh, and push back right away on this. So, anything else you see or, or that can be done to take the fight to them? Because you're right, too often I see cases where people have just uh, sat back or they'll do an initial investigation, put it in the file, and wait until the uh, uh, attack comes to them. Yeah, I mean, the best attorneys I work with, this is going to sound insane. It's going to yeah. sound absolutely insane. It's it's quite brilliant, actually. The best attorneys I work with across all industries, whether it be trucking, healthcare, product liability, Doug, they start writing their opening statement yeah. in, in, the, in the first month of this well, I do my close. I do my closing statement that way. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and my closing statement, and then it's it's what facts yeah. do I have, and what facts do I want to develop to argue to the jury, and that's exactly. the focus of the whole case. You're absolutely you're absolutely right. Yeah. So, so step number one is start preparing start preparing this case for trial, the moment it's filed, and you start getting your facts. Number right. two, which is which which is what I find quite fascinating, which. I'm very happy to report this is when I started in this field roughly 16 years ago, 
every mock trial I conducted, every focus group I conducted was within a couple months of trial. Right. Get ready for this. Seven out of 10 mock trials and focus groups I do now are in discovery, they're before mediation. Right. Now think about this. Yeah. This is, listen, you want to avoid a nuclear verdict? How about figuring out you have a nuclear verdict on your hands yeah. first? And yes, that's going to cost you fifty dollars to $150,000 to properly do the jury research. But if you're a claims person or in-house counsel trial attorney, and I tell you as a, as a clinical neuropsychologist and jury scientist, I tell you, hey, your case is worth $100 million. A jury is willing to award $100 million. And I tell you that two months before trial, what can I possibly do for? I can give you a blindfold and a cigarette, Doug. That's the, that's the best I can do. If I tell you you have a nuclear verdict three years before trial, you see, you see the point here. Oh. So I really think it is. It's not just the thought process of preparing for trial. It's doing the scientific homework to actually figure out the value of the case. And by the way, how do most companies, particularly insurance companies? figure out the value of their case, they ask the attorney, so what do you think this case is worth? Right. And the attorney goes, well, uh, this case is worth five and 10 million. I'm, I'm going, hello, what, where, where in the world are you getting these numbers from? So another reason why nuclear verdicts happen is really a misassessment, uh, 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 bad assessment choices early and a lot of hunches about what a case is actually worth rather than putting the time, energy, and, and yes, yes, money into jury science to figure out what the case is, case is actually worth. And I think that was one of the key takeaways I got from your article, uh, uh, the analogy of the uh, tourists from uh, Turkmenistan. Uh, <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wants to <laughs> You know, you know, because, you know, you don't hear about that because no one goes to Turkmenistan uh, in terms of the jury science, uh, the, the lack of people who do that or cases that do that. Uh, you, you want to go into that in terms of the application and the importance, Bill, of applying scientific evaluation yeah. as a means of avoiding the nuclear verdict. It works. It yeah. works. But the problem is, which has been the. 30-year problem, or it's probably even, it's before my time, is that the insurance defense industry, <laughs> the claims people and the indemnity people, these are two different people. They don't talk to each other. And the claims person is getting paid and bonused on spending the least amount of money possible on a file. They have no financial motivation to win, right? And so it's, the, the barrier here is one of financial. Because listen, if, Doug, if I told you, Doug, give if you give me $100,000 cash right now, I can prevent you from losing $50 million. Would that be a good financial deal? You'd be like, where do I sign up? I but mean, the, incredible ROI. Yeah, it's a credible ROI. But the yeah. problem is the insurance folks don't assess it that way. They see it as a as a loss because they have to spend something yeah. now quite frankly the uh the corporate in-house folks they see it as an investment yeah. and so when i'm actually working with a company that has 
um, and SIR that's significant and you know they're paying the first 10 million it's amazing how the mindset changes and they're willing to put up that whether it be 50 100 200 thousand dollars to do their homework up front to avoid that 50 million dollar verdict whereas you know the AIGs of the world these kind of just the generic insurance companies you know they 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 complain about every nickel you spend on the expert on the mock trial on the witness prep and, and that's what sets themselves up for disaster you know yeah uh, in terms of the cases to apply the science to and, and start early uh not every case would lend itself to that but what are the cases that you would say you know those are the ones we should flag to start this process earlier sooner than later on those well it's not yeah you know, well i mean there's you, you have your obvious variables you know catastrophic injury right um uh, uh death particularly something that's gotten a lot of media attention right. i think and, and by the way and you know people die there are accidents every hour in this country that's not the major it's but it is more the the egregious conduct stuff that you better you better get ahead of so um, one of my new specialties, which will not come as a surprise to you, are um, municipalities hiring me on uh, police brutality cases, because now everything's on this, you know, chest cam, right? Uh, just like in trucking, you have your dash cam. And so, for example, you know, so when you have cases where, you know, everything's, you know, when you go into medical malpractice, nothing's on video. There's no video of the heart surgery that they botched or right but in trucking everything's on video now transport this transportation as a whole if you're uh, a municipality and you have a bus or a train there's video everywhere all the police officers are wearing video these are the types of cases where i mean i i, I got up early dragged my butt out of bed for you doug by the way i appreciate it thank you i i put on the news and the only thing i see is video 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 trying to get voters voters upset which by the way who are the voters oh they're your jurors they're the yeah. same damn people and yeah. so anything that has um visual stimuli mm -hmm. that is controversial negative shocking these are the things you talk about nuclear verdict i don't even know what the word above nuclear is yeah. thermonuclear i don't know but i think that's where you see some kind of even crazier than we've seen is where you have these uh, cases that have um, video slash audio of very bad things happening, which really drives a lot of emotion. Um, that's what you see in, in politics is driving this right now, but so is the plaintiff's bar and, and it works on both ends. Well, you know, it, it, and one of the things I say is we live in a YouTube society. Yep. In terms of everything being on videotape, we're assuming it is down to the ring doorbell. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of leads into a question what what do you do about it you know you have let's say in trucking we've got a video egregious video particularly one that uh the two-way videos where we have a driver who is engaged in conduct that he shouldn't be texting or something yeah. like that what can you do bill from from the perspective or how do you deal with the uh the, the worst of the video evidence that is going to inflame a jury well we can't change facts right that can't can't change facts um test test it with a mock jury to see 
is there any way to get around this, explain it, mitigate it, right? And do that as early as possible. And again, what you're trying to do is 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 resolve the case. The the problem we have, which again, hats off to the plaintiff's bar, they have figured out when not to settle. So you finally figure out, okay, we're screwed. <laughs> we are so screwed. And then you go to plaintiff's counsels. Okay, that check for twenty five was it twenty five million? Okay, let me. And they, oh no no no, oh no, now now it's fifty. Yeah, oh, we're gonna see you in court. They've learned how to play poker really really well, and the problem is you have some of these cases that are just indefensible because of the egregious conduct, and and there is what you're trying to do is you're really trying to put pressure on the actual plaintiff to say, hey, I got a lot of money here. Yeah. You know, why, why wait two more years to get your money? I got the money right here. You'd be shocked how many people would rather take the money and not go to trial. And so yeah. I think being aggressive early with settlement negotiations and, yeah. and, being, and being more than fair um, to try to resolve the cases. But I, I have a client which should go unnamed um, out west, right? And they uh, had injured somebody. Uh, one of their uh, uh, folks was driving a company vehicle, uh, crashed into uh, this, this person uh, who was on a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. They suffered some really, really bad injuries. Doug, they went out and bought this guy a house. Yeah. They, they bought him a, a, a wheel wheelchair van, yeah. right? And then and said, "Hey, we we will do anything. You know, we'll do it. Right. We'll do the right thing here exactly. to avoid the litigation. To avoid and if it actually it actually worked, but yeah. rarely do you see such behavior. But you'd be shocked how often when when you know you have all this anger in this country when when somebody finally does the right thing, you'd yeah. be shocked how the impact it has on your on your adversary." Sure. You know, one of the big things you wrote about in the article was the predictive element of it, using scientific uh, yeah. uh, to do it. You want to talk about that a little bit, Bill, please? Well, yeah. So using the scientific method to predict right. this stuff. And again, the vast majority of uh, case uh, values are assessed on hunches or previous verdicts in the venue, which don't don't work. That's not... Right. That's not how science works. So it's the methodology that's put in place. Um, unfortunately, in my industry, unlike yours, uh, we are unregulated. Uh, I'm probably one of the few people in the jury consulting industry that actually has a PhD in behavioral science and has done, I've actually done scientific research and been published. And so I'm very strong on the scientific method of doing the research correctly to ensure a valid and reliable result versus a lot of people in this industry, um, you know, they have a bachelor's degree in political science. By the way, political science is not a science, uh, Doug. I just want to make that clear. Uh, As a political yeah. science major, yeah. Bill, I know that. So. <laughs> so there you go. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for reminding me. But even, but yeah, even if it's a master's degree in anthropology, or even my favorite competitors, the former trial attorney that's no longer practicing law, but now they're a jury consultant, yeah. they've not, they have no training in the scientific method. So it's the, it's the 
how are you going to put on the, the 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 stimuli for the mock jurors to you know you know what what is that going to look like? Well, there's there's a certain way you have to do that, which one's scientific, one's very unscientific, right? So I know the science behind that. And then your data collection and analysis. What type of data are you collecting? Is it questionnaire? Is it oral? Is it a combination? And and then finally, how are you analyzing? that data so one of the one of the key mistakes which I'll, I'll i'll give you this i don't think we put this in the paper but we have something called a severity shift where say you have a mock jury with 24 jurors the mistake to make statistically is to pull all 24 juries and say, okay um on compensatory damages how much do you award and then on punitives how much do you award and you take all those and you make a chart and then you take the average of those and then you go to your client, right? That's the completely wrong way to do that. And anybody with any type of scientific background would know you don't do that, but your average Joe, that's the way they do it. You get very misleading results. What you do is you break that group of 24 into three groups of eight and you have the jury come up with group decisions. And then you get three sets of data, group one, group two, group three. You average those three numbers that's how you'll get an accurate uh, damages forecasting of your case versus taking all 24. So you can see how, st you know, statistics, right. Again, yeah, you, you see it every day. Uh, look at the COVID numbers. I mean, there's a fight about COVID numbers every single day because people politically, of course, are arguing about these statistics. Well, the same thing happens in jury science is if you don't know what you're doing, you get some very, misleading values, which then will mislead your client. I think that's kind of unethical and inappropriate, but it happens all the time. In applying that scientific method, you described in your article what you're looking at in terms of, and the usefulness, as you said, most cases don't end up going to trial, 98% uh, settle. So the usefulness of this data in terms of your parameters for settlement. So. Well, we have many clients that will enter a mediation with our report <laughs> going to the mediator saying hey we hired people with phds in behavioral science here's the sample that they recruited here's what we showed them here are the results meaning this is roughly a five to eight million dollar case it's not the 55 million dollar case that they're demanding and we have scientific proof and that, ha that has worked very, very often in mediation and negotiations. Now, now what's going to happen, unfortunately, is that your, your plan for attorneys are like, well, I did a mock trial too, and the results came back at a, $100 million. But yeah. then when you start digging into the plaintiff attorney, see, there's the one that plaintiffs do more mock trials than defense, but they do them really badly. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> they invite their neighbors over for pizza. Hey, let's talk mm -hmm. about this case. And you know, that's how they get this. So it's very unscientific. But then when the mediator starts to see the science versus the lack of science, I think it, it can really compel a mediator to, to, to take your side. So I think building that case for mediation slash settlement is very important using the science. But probably, you know, back to the guillotine, the head rolling thing. You know, if I'm a claims adjuster, before I go settling a case for something ridiculous, mm -hmm. I probably want to go to my boss with some scientific evidence of here's why I'm writing. I want to write this check and get approval because I know 
if we go forward, we're, we're going we're gonna to lose big and it's going to cost a lot of money. Here's why I want to write this check. And I have, I have proof that writing this check is actually going to really actually save us a lot of money in the end. Shifting gears, Bill. Uh, one of the things I think you talk about in the article was uh, the, the geographic impact of the potential for a nuclear verdict, uh, judicial hell holes. Uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, um, that. <laughs> well, everybody keeps everybody's calling me right now, saying, "Well, what's the impact of COVID and social unrest going to be on jury decision making?" And we're actually collecting data on that now. I can tell you this, just generally, right now, it's not positive. It's not a positive thing, right? When you have when you have a jury pool that's been devastated economically emotionally, mentally, that's not good for defendants in the courtroom. I can tell you that. We will continue to talk about that. But whether you have COVID or not, you know, things like social unrest in, well, close to you, Philadelphia, right. Baltimore, Los Angeles, Atlanta. I mean, I can go on and on. You get cases in those venues, you're kind of behind the eight ball. And you have to be very, very careful because regardless of the facts of the case, you have a jury pool that wants to settle a score. And that's not going to change. And I think that's actually going to multiply and get worse. And so again, what can you do? Again, early assessment, doing those things to figure out which one's my nuclear verdict. But in, in, in those types of venues, there's not a lot that can be done because not only are the jurors oftentimes very pro your judge yeah you your judge is going to roll against you on every motion and now you have two-thirds of the pie against you bad situation to be in and those are one those those are the types of cases that you want to try to resolve as early as possible and get out let's say we go through the process bill i know you're involved quite a bit with jury selection as well uh, how do you do it, and what are your thoughts in terms of the process on it? It's the worst part of my job. Right. It, it makes me absolutely crazy. And the reason why it's the worst part of my job is because the rules and parameters are different yeah. for every single, not every single courtroom, every single judge. Yeah. And then you have state versus federal. I mean, I, I picked a jury last year in Cleveland. And I kid you not, the judge walks in, you know, all rise, you know, be seated, you know, looks at the attorneys and says, okay, you got 30 minutes each for jury. And I'm like, 30, I've got 95, 30 minutes. Are you out of your mind? And so that's puts me in a very difficult position, meaning, okay, I have to look for the top factors I'm looking for. And then in, in state court, oftentimes you're getting all day, if not multiple days. Um, I think that's something, I think the best tool for jury selection that goes uh, unutilized often because people don't think about it or they assume the judge won't go for it and they're wrong, is the use of a supplemental juror questionnaire. I can do some serious damage and I can, I can make this two pages. This, this could take 15 minutes to fill out. And that's what I tell the judge, but I can get some very sensitive information on a questionnaire I would never be able to get in oral voir dire, ever, right? I mean, because, I mean, think about it. If, if, if during oral voir dire, 
you know, no one's going to raise their hand and say, yep, I'm a racist or yep, I'm I'm a sexist or yep, I you discriminate against, you know, gays and lesbians. No one's going to say that out loud. Right. On a questionnaire, you'd be shocked how honest people are. And you have a lot of cases out there which do have racial components, do have a sexuality component. And no one really wants to talk about that. Um, I work in a lot of premises liability cases where people get raped and then, and the claim is that, Hey, the, the security, well, how are you going to pick a jury on a, on a, on a topic like that? Well, that's where your oral voir dire only gets you so far and people don't like to share sensitive opinions out in the open. But, but on a questionnaire, you'd be shocked how much um, I can essentially expose on, on people because they don't have the public um, aspect of it. And they'll be far more honest on a questionnaire. And by the way, both sides want it. Trust me, the, the plaintiff's bar wants the questionnaire too. And you may have to negotiate on what questions are going to be asked, but that's something that really can be a huge impact on jury selection that doesn't get enough attention. Well, and that kind of leads me to where you started on this topic, which is uh, the, the control of the courts and the individual judges. Uh, you usually get receptivity from the court in terms of uh, the questionnaire, or to get yeah, the, uh, the judge depend on the case? Yeah, it's really depending on, on the judge. But what your argument is, yeah. is that you're going to expedite right. jury selection, right? So what's going to happen now because of COVID, when things start to open up, it it's going to, it's going to crawl. I mean, jury selection was, unless it's a federal case, jury selection is a very tedious process. Now it's going to be even more tedious because of, you know, is social distancing going to be around forever? I, I don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. Are they going to change the rules? Jury selection is going to take longer going forward. So your argument is, which is always in the argument is the questionnaire is going to expedite the process because we're going to find out all this information very quickly in written form and we don't have to rehash everything orally. It's that most judges kind of like that idea. But again, if you're giving them a 19 page questionnaire, they're going to look at you and be like, no, that's, that's not going to work. You got to so, pick your shots. Yeah. Looks out well. Uh, just in conclusion, Bill, what do you see us uh, in terms of what you're finding on the uh, COVID civil unrest? What are you seeing from a jury perspective on that? Well, we've collected data in seven cities uh, across the nation. Uh, we have a, a, a pretty good sample size. And uh, we've, we've also been doing um, a lot of um, online uh, research, which I'm not a huge fan of, but we're kind of stuck with it right now because of public policy. We've still done um, actually some in-person uh, mock trials and, and focus groups in certain locations where you're not in a COVID hotspot. And so we can social distance the mock uh, jurors. Um, you, you got a pretty uh, emotional group, yeah, a very emotional jury pool. And it's quite frankly, mostly politically based as opposed to COVID based. I mean, everybody is fair. Okay. I got to wear my mask and yeah, yeah. People get over stuff like that, but yeah, there's a lot of people have, you know, been furloughed or laid off. Uh, I have a few friends that have actually 
had small businesses had to claim bankruptcy because they couldn't get there. You know, so you have some definitely co and people that have been sick or ill or had a lo lost a family member from COVID. Yes, those issues are out there. That combined with the current um, political atmosphere, you, you you have you have a stick of dynamite right here, right currently, and um, a potential. I mean, look at the craziness that you see in some of these protests, and right. I mean, this is what people are doing right now, and you know the courts really aren't going right now. They're on, they're on pause. And so I think a lot will be dependent um, what happens on November 3rd. Right. I think a lot's going to be dependent on where medically this goes with a vaccine. And is the country going to low? Cause the country right now has a fever of about 108 degrees. It's not, it's not 98.6, right? If we can get that fever to drop, I think that, results in more rational and logical thought at the jury decision-making phase. If that fever stays up, I think you get more of that emotional decision-making like we talked about, and that's where things can get out of hand. But we, we have no control over these things. So I think going whether you have COVID or not, vaccine or not, social unrest or not, uh, Companies, insurance companies, defendants um, can and should uh, take control of a case early, be aggressive. And, and yeah, I, I think the big decision is do we want to spend the money, right? Do we want to spend, do we want to, it's not spending, it's it's the difference between price versus cost. Right. It's a price to something, but this is a cost. And the cost can actually come back in your pocket. Do we want to invest right. in preparing our witnesses effectively? accurately assessing our cases or are we going to be reactive and let the plaintiff's bar take advantage of us that's what it's really going to come down to regardless but i do think come november we're going to learn a lot more about jury decision making and kind of seeing where where the country goes as a, as, as a whole bill two things number one thank you very much of course appreciate Absolutely. your time on that and yeah. secondly as a person who was at the last game at carmichael oh wheels Car. <laughs> Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Bill. Take care.